Well, good morning, everybody, and happy Independence Day. Um, if you're visiting with us today at Mars Hill, my name's Tommy. I'm one of the teaching pastors. Um, we started at the beginning of this the plagues. And today we are going to celebrate on Independence Day here in the United States, the day of the birth of our nation. We're going to also celebrate the freeing of Israel from the oppression of the Egyptians. And so we're going to see the independence, the freedom of Israel out from the bondage of slavery that had been placed on them by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And I think that that is a, that when we see freedom, that we see independence, that we see these things and we connect these and we understand that this is a gift. What we have right now, what we are experiencing in this room without people knocking at the doors and, and beating to come in and take us out of here, that we're not somewhere in a basement trying to worship and whisper our praises to the Lord quietly to protect the lives of our children with us. This is a gift. And we need to make sure that we use this gift and that we proclaim the gospel while we are able, right? That, that we are still able to go into our workplace to a certain degree and, and proclaim the goodness of the Lord. Yes, let's use that. But let's also remember that even if we ever get to the place, and Lord forbid, that we can no longer proclaim those truths, that we still stand on them, we still proclaiming them, understanding that the Lord is faithful to his promise and that we don't live, as Brad said, as citizens simply of the United States, but we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And that's where our hope is, right? And so let's celebrate together today as, as we enjoy today, but let's also look at scripture. Let's look at the Passover and let's look at this day of freedom and independence of Israel. So as we read through this, as Brad read through this, it may sound familiar to you, right? Your brain may have gone back to a few weeks ago and said, wait a minute, we've already talked through this. This sounds very familiar to what we see in the beginning of chapter 12. And so I want real quick to just go ahead and point out the difference in these two. Though there are many similarities, we have the same instructions. There are some differences. Look at Exodus 12.1. It says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. And so it's real important if we look back to our passage from two weeks ago that we acknowledge who is speaking here. It's the Lord, right? And who is the Lord speaking to? Well, he's speaking to Moses and Aaron. And so that's that first set of instructions. This is the Lord giving these to Moses and Aaron. But as we get to our passage today, Exodus 12, 21, we see then Moses called all of the elders of Israel and said to them. And so what is this? Our passage today is where Moses is going to communicate these instructions that have already been given to him by the Lord to the elders of Israel. And in turn, what are the elders going to do? They're going to then communicate these to the head of the large family groups, right? The clan groups where all of these families kind of live in community under. And that's going to be communicated to the family heads. And then the family heads are going to communicate them to all of the other people of Israel. And so this is how, this is the method of how the Israelites get the instructions from the Lord on the means by which they're going to be delivered. 
I don't know that there have ever been a more important set of instructions given in all of world history. Um, as a teacher, I, I go crazy sometimes. These are the instructions for the assignment. This is what you do. 12 seconds later, what do I do, right? We, we don't need Israel to miss these instructions. They're very important. And the weight of these instructions is a little worse than a bad grade. The weight of these instructions is worse than anything else. See, the weight of these instructions is missing out on the freedom from bondage and the freedom from death that the Lord has promised Israel. So these are weighty, weighty instructions. And and so this is the passing on of those. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless this day, bless this teaching, and then we'll dive into this. God, thank you so much for this day. Lord, I pray that today our hearts and our minds be set on independence and freedom as we approach your word because we are going to see the greatest picture of freedom that has ever been painted. Lord, I pray that your word pierce our hearts, that it transform us, that it change us. Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit that you allow our focus to be set on who you are and what you have done on our behalf to redeem us. Lord, I thank you for your word. Be with us today in the name of your son, Christ. Amen. So Exodus 12, 21, the second part says, Go and select lambs for yourself according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Now, we saw a couple of weeks ago these instructions, right? We saw them in 12, verse 3. It says, tell all the congregation of Israel on that day, I'm sorry, Israel, that on the 10th day of this month. That's very uh, important. File that in the back of your mind for now. Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for each household. And then we skip down to verse 5 and 6, and it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish. File that away for me also. A male a year old, you'll take it from the sheep or the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month. File that away. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill the lambs at twilight. So the command is on the 10th day of the month. Remember, this is the first month. This is that brand new calendar that God set up, right? That this calendar of redemption that Israel is now going to live by isn't going to be dictated by the moon. It's not going to be dictated by what crops come from the ground, but it's all speaking toward the story of redemption. And on the 10th day of that first month is going to be designated as a very special day. It's going to be lamb selection day. And this lamb selection day is going to continue on through the history of Israel all the way up till they no longer have a temple to sacrifice at, right? It's going to go all the way up to 70 AD. And now they still remember. Now we still remember, right? Passover, but it's without the sacrifice of the lamb. Now, Kyle spoke a couple of weeks ago about how on the 10th of the month, they would take in the lamb, they would take care of the lamb, and it would be like a family pet, right? They would take care of it. There was an emotional connection to the sacrifice of the lamb, that it was personal. But he also told you that over the next couple of weeks, we would be diving into more imagery of this, right? And that's where we are today. See, but there's another aspect to this. It's not just that taking in the lamb on the 10th, keeping it to the 14th is to create this connection between it and the family and the sacrifice be meaningful and impactful, but it's also for the purpose of observation. See, they, they take the lamb in, they bring it into the home so that they can observe it. And why would they observe it? Remember, this lamb is supposed to be without blemish. And so they observe the lamb. Is it sick? 
Is it lame in any way that we didn't see before? Is anything wrong with this lamb? Because what God is commanding in Passover is a perfect lamb, right? And so this is for the sake of observing it to make sure that it's perfect. Now we have to remember what Paul says in Colossians. Look at Colossians 2, 16 and 17. It says, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or regard to, to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So Paul's saying, don't let people judge you according to these things. But why? Watch this. This is so important. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to who? Christ. See, so, so these festivals mean things, right? We learn through these. We, we practice these. We see God move in these. They're, they're erected as living stones for us to come back to and remember the great things of the Lord. But these are not ends in and of themselves. What are they according to Scripture? They're shadows. And they point forward to something. They point forward to Christ. They're, they're messianic in nature. They're pointing to something else. Now, I find it really, really interesting that when we read the New Testament and we go through this life of Jesus, that something really weird starts happening when we get close to the crucifixion. Just like we've noticed in the book of Exodus, we had these first nine plagues kind of back to back to back. We don't know historically how much time's between them, but we know according to scripture, chronologically, they just kind of move through them, right? But when they get between nine and 10, We've been teaching on this for a couple of weeks now, right? It slows down. There's detail. It's purposeful. And when we study through the Gospels, that's the way that Jesus' life is. Have you ever noticed that? Like we go through Jesus' life and we get these stories. We get, we get the birth. We get all of these things. But then when it gets to Passion Week, the week of the crucifixion, it's like things slow down. Scripture gives us so much information about this week. But one of the things that it does allow us to do because of this detail, it allows us to map out the chronology of the week, especially when we look at the book of John. Look at this. John 12, 1 starts this Passion Week timeline. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So we get a timestamp here, right? We're six days before Passover. You guys remember this story, right? This is the one where we see the anointing of Jesus. Judas gets really mad. You could have sold that perfume for a lot of money. You could have fed a bunch of sick people, right? There were so many better things to do with that. And Jesus says, nope. And then after that, it says that um, all the crowds came. Remember, the crowds are in town for Passover. They started hearing about Jesus and this guy named Lazarus. And what did they do? They rushed out to try to find Jesus and Lazarus, right? They wanted to see Jesus. They wanted to get to Lazarus. They wanted to snap that selfie where they could throw it on Instagram or whatever and do hashtag ain't no grave, right? And so they wanted to make sure that they could come and see this miracle and see this miracle worker. That's that next thing that happens. And then we see in John 12, 12, it says the day after that, the next day. And where are we? We're at Nisan 10. We're at the 10th day of the month. And what was the 10th day of the month known as? Lamb Selection Day, right? It's the same thing. So Jesus enters into Jerusalem and the triumphal entry on Lamb Selection Day. Is this significant? Well, remember, it's types and shadows, right? So look at John. 
John 129 says something really, really interesting. John calls Jesus something interesting that matters to our story today. It says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see the one designated the Lamb of God entering into Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. There's something to this. Then we see through scripture that Jesus is in the city, the 11th, the 12th, and 13th. He's crucified on Passover. According to scripture, what did Jesus do those days? I love this. Don't miss this. He was being examined. See, he gets asked questions by the religious elite. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to find blemish, but they can't. He has a trial before the Jewish leadership. They try to find blemish. They try to find guilt, but they can't. He goes before the Roman judge. He tries, they try to find problems. They try to find reasons to kill the guy, but they can't. He has been examined to be found blemishless. Did you know that there's only one thing that, guilty, uh, that Jesus was found guilty of in those trials? It's the only thing he was truly guilty of, being the son of God. Remember, the, the, he's blaspheming. He's saying that, that he's the son of God. He's saying these things. He's saying that, that, that I and the father are one. He's saying these things. Guess what? They're true. And so what do we see? We see Jesus coming in as the lamb who was to be slain, who has been examined, who is found blameless, who is found spotless, and who is to be found worthy to be sacrificed with the lambs on Passover on our behalf. Guys, this is amazing. And when we look at Matthew 27, 22 through 24, if we know the history of the Roman Empire, they never really found problems with finding reasons to kill people. If you understand Roman history, I have a few of my students in here. We study through Rome, right? We, we find out that this is not the place where let's just go walking down the street this evening. Everything's fine, right? It's not that place. But look at this. Matthew 27, 22 through 24 says, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with this, with Jesus, who is called the Christ? They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they say all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took the water and he washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. See, Pilate, <laughs> Pilate was out of this. Pilate couldn't even find fault. And so this story of deliverance in Egypt is a type and a picture of what we see being done in Christ. And if you think that all of this is coincidental, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 takes care of this for us. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are in leaven, right? From what we've been studying. Why and how for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This isn't coincidental. That when we see the work of Christ, when we see the cross, when we see the death, the burial, the resurrection, when we see the work of Jesus, when we see that he's sinless, it is supposed to draw our mind back to this freedom from the bondage of sin that's, that's illustrated for us in Exodus. And so this should give weight to this story. I mean, think about on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. 
you hear the crowds that had been hearing about Jesus, right? They had heard the story. Some of them went out to the countryside to see he and Lazarus. They had heard these things that, he, that he's been doing, and they've been like, could that be the guy? Remember, Passover's pointing to this coming Messiah. And so this expectation of Messiah was at an all-time high. And on Lamb Selection Day, we see the crowd screaming, Hosanna to the son of David. We see them saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We see them saying, Hosanna in the highest heaven. What were they doing? They were selecting their lamb. The only one to be found worthy. There's something else in this passage that's interesting. Look at Exodus 12, 22. It says, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. We have to remember that it is not just the sacrifice of the lamb that brought salvation. It is the application of the blood of the lamb that brought salvation. It wasn't enough that the lamb was sacrificed, that the lamb was killed, but the application of the blood must happen. Last week, Jack talked about the illustration of the doorpost and the cross, but what I want to focus on today is this hyssop. That, that hyssop was used as the application tool to apply the blood to the doorpost of the house, right? Now, what this started in Jewish tradition is that hyssop would become this tool, this method for purification, that the Lord would command this of Israel. And so many of these purification rites involved hyssop. If we look at Leviticus 14, 1 through 7, this is the ceremony for the cleansing of a leper. Um, and hyssop was used here to apply the blood. It said, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of their cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest. The priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look. Then if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the, pe the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two live clean birds, cedarwood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthen vessel over fresh water. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood, the scarlet, the yarn, scarlet yarn, and the hyssop and dip them and the, them and the live bird into the blood and the bird into the blood of the killed blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. And then he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of leprous disease. And he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. So the hyssop the, is part of the tool used for the application of the blood to, to cleanse, right? To make ritually pure again. We see this again in Numbers 19. In Numbers 19, we're talking about the cleansing of coming in contact with something dead. And, and what we see leading up to this is that we see that the red heifer is to be burned, that we see that scarlet wool is to be thrown in, that hyssop is to be thrown in, and, and these things are to burn and once they burn, they're to take the ash, scoop them up, put them into a jar, and take them back into the city and watch what happens. Numbers 19.18 says, Then a man who is ceremonially clean is to take some hyssop, dip it into this water that's water mixed with the ashes of the sacrifice, and sprinkle the tent and all the furnishings and the people who were there. He must also sprinkle anyone who has touched the human bone or grave or anyone who's been killed or anyone who has died a natural death. And so hyssop 
was used as the purification tool. Look at Psalm 51.7. Purge me with hyssop that I shall be clean. Wash me that I shall be whiter than snow. And so when we look through scripture, we see that hyssop is always connected with purification. And that it's also always connected with purification through the process of a sacrifice. Right? And so when we get to John 19, 29, look at this. It says, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put, it on, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. This is the crucifixion of Jesus, right? So we get all the way to the New Testament. And what happens when we see this, I'm thirsty? We see hyssop show up even in the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, you may say this is coincidental. This is something different. But what we have to remember is who recorded those words. It's in John, right? I mean, we only spent two and a half years trying to figure out what John said. And and so we found out that every single thing that John said was purposeful. Not that the rest of Scripture wasn't. But it was purposeful to point to something specific. And what did it point to? John 20, 31. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything John recorded was to point to the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. Everything he recorded. You know, we set up John as we talk through it as like this courtroom scene. John is literally trying to present evidence so that you can find Jesus guilty of being the Son of God. Like, that's, that's what John's for. And so everything's intentional. And when we look at the section of Scripture that this is found in, this instance of, of using hyssop to raise the sponge soaked in the sour wine to Jesus, it's in John 19, 28 through 37. There are seven fulfillments of the Old Testament in that tiny little passage. It's like everything that's dropped points back to the Old Testament, points back to what's happening here. It it points forward to what is going to be done. It points forward to the resurrection. It points to this cleansing. And so when we see hyssop involved, it's not like John to make an accident. It should point us to the fact that what we are seeing here is an act of purification. It's to roll the mind of the reader back so that they see, ah, that's, that's what's happening. The sacrifice of Jesus is for the purification. That, that the sacrifice of the perfect lamb is for purification. And, and, and that's what it's for. And it's just focus our minds in on that. Let's keep going. Look at verse 24 through 27. It says, you shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So just like what we saw last week in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that they are to do this, they're called to remember 
That's why you remember Passover, right? That it's, it's a living stone. It's something to look to, as we said earlier. It's something to look back to. We look back at this, and just like we saw last year, this call, yesterday, not last year, um, just like we saw last Sunday, um, we have this call to remember even before freedom had been granted. So that when it did happen, there was no question at all by what means the freedom was brought. It was brought through the mighty, faithful hand of God. And they're also called to remember this. I don't know if you caught this or not as we work through. They're called to remember in the promised land. How guilty are we of forgetting the goodness and faithfulness of the Lord when things are good? Like when we've gotten out of that bondage that we've poured our hearts out to him for. Lord, free me from this. Deliver me from this. And the Lord works through that. And then we get on the other side. Okay, good. Remember the quote last year? Uh, I keep doing this. Last Sunday. I even said it over in uh, Fairhope last week. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, but remember the quote that the Christian life is a combination of amnesia and deja vu? It's like we, we learn these things and then we forget these things and then we learn these things. And we're like, wait a minute, I've learned that before. And so this call to remember is something that's very important. It's something that's important to us today, that we remember the goodness of the Lord. Look at this. The response of Israel is beautiful in this. Look at 1227. Guys, this is in response to the instructions the Lord hadn't brought them out yet. In response to the instructions, it says the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Right? They worshiped because of what the Lord is doing. He'd been showing himself faithful to them, right? Think about the first nine plagues. The Lord spared them a Goshen, right? That, that he had been showing his plan and they remember and, and they believe and they see the Lord is faithful. And this is a great contrast what we saw earlier in the book of Exodus, right? Look back at Exodus 5, verse 20 and 21. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. So what's happening here? If you remember, this is that first encounter between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. And what did they do? They went in and said, hey, Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, you know, who is this Lord? Why should I obey him? Why should I let his people go? And then Pharaoh gets mad at this, doesn't he? And what does he do? He makes the workload on them harder. And so what is the response to this? Moses said, God wants you to be free. But then they see their circumstances, that the circumstances got harder and they were supposed to get better because God had free, was going to free them, right? And what was their response in this? Look at verse 21. It says, and they said to him, the Lord look on you and judge you. Because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. This doesn't sound like the same Israel we see today. We, we see an Israel here that's scared. We see an Israel that's faithless. We see an Israel that's concerned. We see an Israel that's only looking at the circumstances right here, right now. They can't see anything bigger. They're worried about this retaliation that Pharaoh has set against them. Their work got harder and they're unhappy. But look at the difference now. They'd seen the Lord faithful and they say, what do we do? 
I worship you. I obey you. I follow you. And that's the beauty of verse 28 there. It is that the people went and did so. They followed this instruction. They responded in obedience. They trusted and obeyed. This is not simply a worship of lip service. It's following. There's a definition of worship that I've adopted for my life from years ago. This is back in college. That was a really long time ago now. I feel like, oh man, I'm old. Um, but it, it's a long time ago now, right? I'm talking 20 years back and it's still one that is like sticking with me and it's following me and it stays with me. And what is this definition that I live by? It's responding with all of who God is, with all of who you are. You want to know what worship is? That's it. Where do I get this from? Well, several places in scripture, but the primary place that I see this and I've talked through this before is Isaiah chapter six. This is the commission of Isaiah. If you guys are familiar with the story, it starts with Isaiah saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. And then we see that there are seraphim there and the seraphim are singing a song. They're crying out, they're proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And then we see at the voice of the Lord that the whole place shakes and it trembles. And so what's happened? We've seen the Lord revealing who he is to Isaiah. The Lord initiates this. The Lord starts this and says, this is who I am. And then what does Isaiah do? As a response of seeing who the Lord is, Isaiah sees who he really is. And what does he say he really is? He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. He realizes that he is in, uh, in the presence of holiness. And he says, woe is me, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. It doesn't stop there. The Lord doesn't say you're right and crush him, does he? No, a seraphim takes a live coal from the altar. And he comes and puts it to the lips of Isaiah. And what does he say? He says, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. So what have we had? The, the Lord shows who he is. Isaiah responds, you're holy and I'm not. The Lord says, that's okay. I will purify you. I will atone you. And then something interesting happens. The Lord says, who will go for us? And what does Isaiah do? Me. I'll go. Right? We, we see this response that it's not just I believe, but it's that when we do believe, there is a response, right? That, that there's a change. We see this through the New Testament, don't we? Think about when Jesus calls the disciples. We, we have people fishing. They have their whole livelihood in their hands in the net. And Jesus says, follow me. And they drop the nets. Why? Because their faith and hope isn't in the net providing for them anymore. They're following the lamb. But we also see the opposite of this in scripture. Think about the rich young ruler. He says, I've followed all the commands. And Jesus says, then sell all you have and follow me. And what does it say? He went away sad. Why did he go away sad? The Bible says because he had great wealth. The Bible's not teaching us there that wealth is bad. Sell everything you have. What it's teaching us is that that wealth can never become your God. See, he was already following his God. He was already obedient to his God. His outward expression came as a response to this inward condition. 
He couldn't drop his wealth. Why? Because that's where his hope and his trust was in. He could not drop that to follow Jesus because he was already obedient to a God. See, it's not that humanity has a problem with obedience. Though we do. That's not the big issue. The big issue is that we like to obey things that aren't God. See, you can tell what we have our hope and trust in by the way that we live our lives. And this just got really uncomfortable for me too. It's okay. Do I live every day of my life in a way that when people look at my decisions and and the way that I do things and my obedience to the word and they say, that's a Christ follower. Or do they say, wow, he looks a lot like us. I mean, there's some differences, but, right? So we have to understand this, that, that this submission, that this worship, that this bowing of the head, this bending of the knee should have the response of obedience. That's in the book of John too, right? John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Visible belief causes action. I can see what you guys believe in right now and you don't even know it. You know what I see that you believe in? That chair that's holding you up. Nobody's got a rope suspended from one of the beams in the ceiling for when it collapses, you hit the ground, right? You're not sitting like this, like I know it's going to fall in a minute. You came in and you sat down, right? There was, there was a response. You had sat in that chair a whole bunch of times before because let's face it, we're creatures of habit. Probably that exact same one. You may even have your name engraved on it. I don't know. But, but you've sat in those chairs before. And you know what? Those chairs have held themselves to be true to you. They have been good to you. They have never once let you down, and so you trust them. Guess what? The closer we get to the Lord and the longer that we follow him, (laughs) you know where I'm going. We're going to see that he's trustworthy, that he's faithful, that he's true, and he won't let us down. And as we go through this faith journey, as we walk, as we follow him, that obedience piece is going to be, yeah, I trust. Right? And we follow in this. One commentator said this, In many ways, these were the most important words of the whole account. As great as God's deliverance was, the people would have never received it if they had failed to do what God had told them to do. This response and obedience. This brings a question to my mind, and I don't have the answer to it. I'm just going to ask it rhetorically and let it bother you all night too. Uh, Were there any Israelites who didn't obey? Were there any that suffered judgment by not applying the blood of the lamb to the doorpost and staying in through the night? I don't know. Were there any Egyptians that got word of this and said, I've seen nine plagues already. There's something to this. We don't know. But what we do know is that the only key to freedom was obedience, following, and trust. Right? That's important. That's important for us to remember. It wasn't just enough that the lamb was slain. It had to be applied. So Exodus 29, 12, 29 through 30, it says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants, and all of, Egypt, all of the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. We've seen this before, um, that that God brings judgment to 
their hope, their trust, the system that they laid everything into. And we see this again in this passage, right? This 10th plague is a horrible plague. I mean, think about this. We can't possibly think of anything worse in our lives as a parent than the loss of a child. And yet we still can't process it if we haven't even gone through it. And then if you can imagine even thinking of adding to that what was going on societally at the time, right? The firstborn was the means by which your family name and legacy was supposed to continue, right? Like the inheritance was supposed to go to them. This is heavy. This is weighty. The cultural viewed the firstborn as the continuation of life almost. That even if you died, like that person picked up everything, picked up the family fortune, picked up the family name, picked up all of these things and continued it forward. This is a heavy, heavy judgment when we look at it. But when we examine scripture, we realize that it's still just. Look at Exodus 1.22. This is way back at the beginning. Then Pharaoh commanded all of his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but every daughter you shall let live. See, Egypt had followed through with an unjust judgment on God's firstborn Israel. And now God is responding in a just judgment on Egypt. This is not revenge. This is not evil being repaid with evil. My God is incapable of that. That's not in his character. That is not who he is. And what helps us understand that is that when we see that this is not even the same Pharaoh, the Pharaoh that ordered the casting of the children into the Nile was either the father or the, great, uh, or the grandfather of the Pharaoh of the plagues. And so it's not even the same Pharaoh. So what is this showing us? It's showing us that we're talking about decades and centuries of oppression and crushing of God's firstborn. And this terrible, terrible judgment is in response to the terrible, terrible crime that has been committed. We cannot forget that God is love. Yes, that God is patient. Yes, that God is merciful. Yes, but God is also just. He cannot allow unjustness to continue on. And he brings judgment into this. This is not revenge. Look at Exodus 4, 22 through 23. It says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel, my firstborn son. So if we go all the way back to chapter 4, God is saying, look, you're holding my firstborn. Let my firstborn go. And then there's this warning. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. There's the purpose of freedom. And now we see if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So we've had decades. We've had centuries of warnings. We've had grace upon grace to repent of this. We see through the plagues, grace upon grace upon mercy to repent of this. But there becomes a time that judgment is there. It's at hand. It's time for it. And God will judge. All of us in this room will be under that also. It's not something that we get to escape except by the blood of the perfect lamb, Jesus. 
Exodus 12, 29 says, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captives who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. No home was excluded. I remember I told you earlier that this was an attack again against the uh, Egyptian system of belief, right? If you've been with us through all of these weeks, you know how we've talked about the Egyptian gods, right? And we've talked about how God's judgment is not just against like Egypt as a whole. It's against where they've placed their hope. Why? So that the question could be answered. Who is the Lord, right? And we see this again in our passage today because this strike, this plague was against the god Osiris. Now, the god Osiris is an interesting god in Egyptian history, a very important god in Egyptian history also. And by the time we get to about 2400 BC, we start getting a lot of writings on Osiris. And this is, uh, I mean, a lot. He begins to be embodied with not just fertility, but also this embodiment of the resurrected king. This is about a thousand years before the events of the Exodus. And as time goes on, we start seeing this concept of divine kingship of Pharaoh being connected with Osiris. And what they started believing is that as Pharaoh died, as Pharaoh passed along, he would actually go and become part of Osiris. He would be Osiris. And what they believed then is that his son, the new Pharaoh, would be connected with the god of the sky. And so we see this kind of dual kingship, this where Osiris and Horus were father and son. And as you move on to about 2000 BC, we start seeing Osiris get connected with something else. Well, if he's the god of the underworld, if he's the god of these things, then he is pushing up all things that come out of the ground. And, and, and so the grain is a result of being pushed up, being brought out by Osiris. The fruit trees that bear fruit are being brought up by Osiris. And as we get within 2000 BC, working down to the time of the Exodus, we start seeing that Osiris is not connected with just the Pharaoh. That Osiris is connected with every single man that dies. And what is the hope in Osiris? Don't miss this. The hope in Osiris is that he is the God of resurrection, not actually resurrection from the dead, but that he resurrects the name and the lineage of your family through your offspring. So what did they put hope and trust in Osiris for? To protect their offspring and to continue their family lineage. So the hope of the protection of their kids is found in Osiris. The hope in their lineage is found in Osiris. The hope for provision of the continuation of life is found in Osiris. And this judgment of God is saying, the God that you've put your hope and trust in is found empty, wanting, and can't help you. Your God is blind, deaf, and unable. Answering the question again, who is Yahweh? Yahweh is everything. All the hope and trust you've put in other places can only be fulfilled in Yahweh. This is also attack against Pharaoh himself, that the deity that you could see in person, visible, sitting on the throne, was unable to save himself, was unable to save his family. And this line, so Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry, is a powerful one. What's happening here? Think about this. Throughout all the plagues, what have we seen? We've seen the Lord inform Pharaoh Pharaoh hardened his heart. We see the Lord inform Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. 
We see the Lord inform Pharaoh. God hardened his heart. It wasn't an absence of information. What was the problem? The hard heart. And what happened in this instance to free Israel? The heart of Pharaoh was crushed. It was a great cry out. Why? Because there wasn't a home, including his own, that had had death or loss. Guys, this is heavy. This is big. And when we look through scriptures in the Exodus, we see this. Think of chapter 2. In chapter 2, Israel cried out to God, God save us. We get to chapter 5, Israel cried to Pharaoh, stop, relent, lay off of us, please. But now Pharaoh had a reason to cry out. See this? See that this is the method that deliverance of, of Israel was brought. That, that this is the method. Remember, we sung about the lion and the lamb earlier, right? We've seen all of these imagery, all this image of the lamb, right? The lamb that was slain. But understand the lion has teeth, is powerful, will bring judgment, right? He will fight against his enemies. And guess what? He will win. And so we have to understand this, that we don't just have an image of, of God the way that so many people do. Oh, he just, it's just love. Love's going to win. Everybody, everybody's going to go to heaven. It doesn't matter. Why love wins? No, he's also the lion, right? We have to remember this. Exodus 21, 31 through 32. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone. Bless me also. Now this word that's translated to summon could be also translated to proclaim. And so this is a message sent out from Pharaoh. It's sent out from Pharaoh to Moses. Hey, get your people and go. I'm conceding to everything that the Lord requested. Remember up to this point, we constantly see Pharaoh trying to bargain with God, right? Let me keep the animals. You guys go worship. That way you come back, right? Because I'm God too and we can negotiate. That is not the Pharaoh we see in this picture. We see a broken Pharaoh. We see a Pharaoh that has been humiliated by his own stubbornness, by his own rigidness. And he finds himself as admitting that the Lord's judgment is on him and it's too much for him to handle. All of that that we just read was a repeat of what the Lord said he wanted from earlier in Exodus, except for one line. And what was that one line? Bless me also. You see this change in mentality? Where else in scripture, if anywhere, do we see a blessing coming from Israel to Pharaoh? We see that in Genesis 47, 7. Got to go all the way back to Joseph. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. This is interesting to me because there's a lot of rabbis that pick up on this and they say that because of what Jacob, um, Jacob being Joseph's father and because of what Joseph had shown Pharaoh in the wisdom that God had given him, that Pharaoh didn't see himself necessarily as being over Jacob or the God of Jacob because his God had proven true in wisdom, right? That, that he raised up Joseph in statue. 
And so we see that at the first of this Israelite entrance into Egypt. And now what do we see at the end of it? We see these blessings as a bookend. And those rabbis say now that this Pharaoh of the plagues is now in that position. He understands that he is not superior to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not superior to the God of Moses. And as a result, ask for a blessing. And we look at this, and I wish that this was kind of how the story ended. Because right now you look at this and you see go, and they're going to go. And you see the heart of Pharaoh that looks like it's changed. It looks like it's transformed. It looks like it's softened to God. It appears that we have a heart change in Pharaoh. But it's not. It's short-lived. We find out that his concession is ultimately going to be for his comfort. Because we're going to see that hard heart come back. And the desire for vengeance. And he's going to chase the Israelites and ultimately find the demise his demise in the rough, choppy, chaotic waters of the Red Sea. So what do we do with this story? Right? We, we've worked through it. What do we take from it? What do we learn from it? I think that there's a few things. Number one, we proclaim worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, Right? That we find that Jesus being the perfect spotless lamb of God who was examined, who was found perfect, who died on the cross for our sins to be our Passover lamb if the blood of the sacrifice is applied to the doorpost of our hearts. He is worthy. And if you're in this room and you've never understood that, you've never submitted your life to that, understand that today can be the day that you apply the blood of the sacrificed lamb to the doorpost of your heart. How does the Bible say we do that? We do that by confessing. We do that by believing. Today can be the day of your salvation. And those of us in this room that are redeemed, we follow this method of remembering, this call to remember, and we never forget that. We preach that to ourselves every single day that the lamb is worthy. We see that in scripture when we get to Revelation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He is worthy. The second thing I think that we take from this is that we proclaim that the Lord is faithful. I love this part. The Lord promised Israel their deliverance and they were delivered. The Lord promised them entry into the promised land. They entered the promised land. And if I look at this meta-narrative wise, if I look at this big picture wise, we understand that all the feasts have not been fulfilled yet, right? But what do we do? We look forward to those that will and the faithfulness of those that we've learned that already have been. Remember, if the Lord was faithful, he will be faithful. Understand that the plan of God will come to pass. It's not a might. He's faithful to his promises. And we remember that. We look forward to the day that all things are made new. I look forward to that day. I say, Lord, come quickly a lot of days. And I say that out of an assured heart of knowing that his promises will come to pass. And I understand that he will never leave my side.
He will never leave me. When things get uncomfortable, he hasn't gone. When things get inconvenient, he hasn't gone. And that his plan to bring me through this process of sanctification and making me holy as he is holy is going to continue on because he is faithful. And the last thing we learn from this is springboarded off of that one. As we see the faithfulness of the Lord, we're called to obedience. Right? As so often in Christianity... We make it about what we don't do. I was raised in a church where there was so much emphasis on what we don't do, right? Uh, don't, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't date any girls that do, right? That, that, was, that was who we are. That's what identified you as a Christian. And so often we've reduced Christianity to this list of don'ts, which there are. Avoid sin. Take the leaven out of your life, right? We can't forget last week to talk about this week. But we also need to remember that we are called to be something, not just to avoid something. That we have a call of obedience on our life, that we go and make disciples of all nations, that we live our life in obedience, that we live our uh, lives in submission, that we make him our God that we submit to, and not the God of finances, the God of all of these things, even good little G gods like our family. That can't be our source of everything. It's to be found in Christ, and that's where our allegiance, that's where our submission, that's where our cooperation, and that's where our alliance and obedience lies. We have to remember that. And we have to remember that as we grow in love and faith, it's going to spur us on to obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We use this to examine our lives, right? There's some questions out of this that you can discuss with your family, with your kids, that can start genuine, good gospel conversations. I think our first family question that we can look at is, what does the Bible mean when it says, worthy is the lamb? And you can start sharing that gospel with your kids. He is worthy. What did he do? He paid for your sins. How? Through the application of his blood to your life. That's good news. And the second one is one that's important too. It's important for us that are redeemed. How has the Lord been faithful to us? And why is it important that we remember the faithfulness of the Lord? Talk to your kids, your family about his faithfulness. Rehearse the gospel. Go over the gospel. Focus in on the gospel. Focus in on his goodness. All of who he is. And see the freedom out of bondage of sin that he brings through salvation and the sacrifice lamb to your life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. There was so much in today. Lord, I pray that through some of it, Lord, I, I just have to believe that your whole word holds true to itself, that it never returns void. And so, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, that we remember your goodness, we remember you as sacrifice, that we remember the salvation that you bring to us, the freedom from the bondage of sin that's brought to us. Lord, let us remember that you are the lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of the world. Let us also remember that you are the lion of Judah. Lord, let us remember your goodness. Let us remember your faithfulness. Lord, when we go through troubling times, let those things flood back to our mind. That even when things are inconvenient, that our hope and our trust is in you who is never movable. The circumstances of the world don't change you. You change them.
Lord, help our hearts and our minds be set on you as we go today. It's in the name of your son, Christ, I pray these things. Amen.